Well, good evening. If you're a visitor here, let me explain what we're doing on a Sunday evening. Uh, we're having a meeting from 6 till 6.45, so it's very short, 45 minutes, and we're focusing uh, on a, a course of foundations of the Christian faith. Now, some folk in the room are actually in parallel with this, doing a course called Crosslands, which is exactly the same kind of material that we're looking at together, but going into it in a bit more detail, folk having opportunity during the week to dig a bit deeper. But we want the whole church to have opportunity to do this. So it's great to see you this evening. And uh, even just if you're just here for one evening, we hope there's going to be a huge benefit to you. Uh, to help you uh, and help me, there is a, a sheet. Uh, please have a copy in front of you because if you lose me at any point, I think you'll find it uh, hopeful, helpful to rejoin me uh, if you've got that in front of you. Now, these Sunday evenings are nothing if not ambitious. If there were a sport called iceberg hopping, this would be it. Because in the space of half an hour, what we're attempting to do is to hop from one giant iceberg to another. Iceberg of great foundational truths of the Christian faith. Icebergs that actually occupy volumes of books and articles and essays and lectures and online material. So what we do is just the tip, the very top of the iceberg. There it is. That's what we're doing this evening. Not least of all when it comes to tonight's subject. We're spending two weeks looking at the doctrine of Scripture. Now last week, Steve Bialy, who's doing the main talks on these uh, evenings, started us off with the vital question, how can we know God, the doctrine of Scripture? And if you were here, you remember he spoke about three things, revelation, inspiration, and the canon of Scripture. Now, by revelation, we mean how does God make himself known to humankind? How does God make himself known? And the answer is through general revelation and special revelation. General revelation refers to what? Creation. creation, thank you. Plenty of feedback. I'm quite happy, very happy with that. To creation. Psalm 119 reminds us that the heavens declare the glory of God. So whoever you are in the world, you know that there is a God by simply looking at the sheer enormity and complexity and the intricacy of creation let alone our own bodies, which are fearfully and wonderfully made. God makes himself known through general revelation, through creation, but also through conscience. So every human being, whatever our background, whatever our upbringing, has an innate sense of right and wrong. That is because the Bible says God has planted eternity in the heart of every human being. There is an image of God in all of us that gives us this moral compass. Romans 1 talks about that, the fact that the creation, the general revelation of God, and that imprint of God, God's image upon our very moral being is, is enough for us to know that there is a God. But of course, simply looking at creation doesn't tell us all the things we need to know about God. It doesn't tell us what he's like. Creation tells us he's artistic and he's powerful, he's almighty, he's enormous. But it doesn't tell us of his love 
his care, his compassion, his faithfulness, all those aspects of his character. And for that, we need special revelation. So special revelation, as we saw last week, comes through the word of God himself, the Lord Jesus. John 1, he was called the word became flesh. And it comes through the word of God. So the word, Jesus, and the word, the Bible, together reveal to us who exactly God is. They tell us about his character. And then we moved on to think about how God gave us his word. He, remember, he breathed it out. The Holy Spirit breathed out the, the scriptures through human authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And yet, the message ties together. Different authors altogether, different eras of time. And yet, ultimately, with the one message, the unfolding plan of God's salvation. God breathed out the scriptures through human instruments. That's the doctrine of inspiration. And then thirdly last week, we thought about the canon. How did the Bible come about? How did the church decide that there's 66 books that make up the Bible? 39 in the Old Testament, uh, 30, I've got my sums wrong there, 30, 27 in the New. Thank you. I should be able to do the sums. I've got it right. 39, 27. How do they decide that made up the Bible? Well, they look to this authentic note of the, of the Spirit of God and of the truth of God in those books. So that was last week, the canon of Scripture. Now, this evening, we're going on another hop across three other enormous icebergs, those of authority, inerrancy, and sufficiency. So buckle on your crampons, and here we go across those icebergs. Firstly, the authority of Scripture. The issue of the Bible's inspiration that we looked at last week and the inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency of the Bible that we're going to look at this week all boil down to its authority. What authority does the Bible have? Apparently, there's a bumper sticker in the States Sorry, Steve. Well, he's away, so he won't hear anyway, so I can use this illustration. But it could only be in the States, couldn't it? This kind of bumper sticker, and it says this. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Now, that sounds, wow, brilliant. But actually, it's not brilliant. There's something wrong with it. What's wrong with it? Three statements. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. What's wrong with that statement? I might get you to talk to each other. Why don't you have one minute with each other? What's wrong with that statement? There's one of the statements that are wrong. Give you a big clue. Great. Anybody want to volunteer an answer here? What about this wonderful table down the front here? Anybody? God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Which, what's, what's the problem with that? No? Okay. We're over. Oh, we've got Thomas. I believe it. 
Yeah, that's the problem with that. We're talking about the subject of authority. The subject of authority. That kind of infers that biblical authority has no authority until I believe it. Do you see that? So I authenticate the Bible. I give it its authority. Now what the sticker should simply say is God says it, that settles it. God says it, that settles it. If God reveals something, then just by implication, by definition almost, that revelation carries the weight of his authority. Because there's no higher authority than God himself. Once God, as it were, opens his mouth, that settles the matter. It's what the 16th century reformers, you remember Luther and Calvin, those other guys, they, they called the sola scriptura. They fought the Reformation on this, that it's by scripture alone that we form our life and our beliefs as Christians, by scripture alone. So the supreme authority in all matters of life and faith rest with God's word, the Bible, simply because it is his word. It carries his authority. There is no higher court in the world than that of God himself. It's not the church, it's not humankind that decide what is ultimate truth, but God himself. Ephesians 2.20 teaches us that the church is established on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Who were the prophets? What did the prophets give us? They gave us the Old Testament. The prophets gave us the Old Testament. Who gave us the New Testament? How did the New Testament come about? Who were, who were the human agents for that? The apostles. So we, the apostles and the, and the prophets is another way of saying the Old Testament and the New Testament together. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the ultimate authority is not upon the tradition of the church or the pronouncements or of the church. In the reformers' case, the, the Catholic church, which the reformers railed against the fact that they'd layered on top of God's word all sorts of rules and regulations in order to essentially keep people away from the light of God. And it was the reformers who said, no, it's sola scriptura. It's only the Bible that carries the authority of God. As Martin Luther put it, the church does not make the word, but is made by the word. The church does not make the word, but is made by the word. So the authors of scripture clearly saw themselves, both prophets and apostles, as speaking with the authority of God himself. Probably the most famous little phrase in the Old Testament that appears over 400 times is the phrase, thus saith the Lord, as the older A.V. put it, thus saith the Lord. The prophets, therefore, clearly saw themselves not speaking on their authority, but on the authority of God. And you remember that if it was shown that they were a false prophet, the penalty was stoning to death. So nobody was going to get up and say, thus saith the Lord, and it not come about, because they knew if it didn't come about, it was the end for them. 
But there was this authentic note to the authentic messengers where they said, thus saith the Lord. They were compelled to speak the words of God. And uh, we can look at places like Numbers 24 and Amos chapter 3. But it's a 2 Samuel where the prophets clearly saw themselves as governed and led by the Holy Spirit and in special relationship with God who was speaking through them. So Amos puts it like this. Surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. That undergirds the whole of the Old Testament. But the New Testament, in similar fashion, the apostles made similar claims. For instance, Peter says an intriguing thing in 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. He says Paul's letters, so in the first century, while the apostles were still alive, manuscripts of what become the epistles and the gospels and so on were doing the rounds of the churches so that Peter refers to them and he says Paul's, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand which unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures so you see what he's saying there he's given the weight of the old prophetic Old Testament the prophet's voice to the apostle Paul and saying when you hear Paul's voice in these letters you are hearing God's voice Paul's letters contain some things that are difficult to understand which unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So they self-consciously knew that they were writing the word of God with the authority of God himself. Now before we leave this, because we've got to move on very quickly now, I want us to see with all of these, there are huge practical implications for us today. Indeed, for the church in every age and every generation because it means that we constantly, like the reformers, need to be bringing ourselves back to the Bible and asking ourselves the question, are we living in conformity under the authority of the word of God or the tradition of men? Because, you know, we're all instinctive legalists and we love to be told how we should live and what we should do and where we should go and all this kind of stuff. But the word of God doesn't work in that way. God reveals himself and treats us as grown-ups. And he wants us to, as it were, think his thoughts after him, as, as one famous scientist put it. God wants us to use our minds to live in accordance with his word, not in the traditions of others or other people. I, I once went to the Richmond Hill Methodist Church in Bangalore. Yeah, in India. Sunday morning. It was an astonishing experience because we went in, this was only about 15 years ago, and the men, I mean, this was 100 degrees of heat in India, Bangalore. The men were in three-piece suits and the women were in long flowing garments and dresses, both of which hark back to the British Raj when Britain ruled India and the ruling classes dressed in that way and went to church in that way. Now what did that say to any Indian 
native Indian person who went into that church. It simply said this, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to dress like a Westerner. Not like a 21st century Westerner, actually like a 19th century Westerner. And to boot, we sang 19th century hymns of Moody and Sankey, and everything about it breathed the British Raj. What had we done? As Christians, we had exported our traditions. We have said to these, those people that became believers in that situation, this is how you're to dress, this is how you're to behave, this is how you're to do church. That's what I mean. One of the implications, you see, is that we constantly have to rethink ourselves and our practices by the word of God and challenge ourselves and say, is this biblical? The very reason, in one sense, that this building came about was because uh, in a previous time, John Tyndall and myself traveled to different parts of the world. John had gone to Southeast Asia. I'd gone to India and uh, to the Philippines. Now, you know this. If you travel to another culture, you can see that culture and its strengths and weaknesses immediately. That impact upon me of the Bangalore church and what had we done by exporting the traditions as if it were the gospel. It meant that when John and I came back, when we talked about these things with the elders and with the church, we were asking ourselves the question, what barriers do, do we can we put in the place, in the way of people hearing the gospel? That was one of the reasons why this building is designed as it is and used as it is. Because we wanted to take away all those natural barriers that said to people, if you're going to hear the gospel, you've got to dress up in a certain way, you've got to look a certain way, you've got to sing in a certain way. No, no, no. We should do away with all those things in order that people can hear the gospel. So these truths, these doctrines have massive contemporary application for us. We must hurry on. The next one, the next iceberg, is the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, inerrancy, in theological terms, is linked to infallibility. Infallibility simply is saying, it describes that something cannot happen. It's infallible, it cannot happen. Inerrancy, that we're now looking at, means that it does not happen. And when we apply that to the doctrine of Scripture, we're talking about the inerrancy of Scripture in the sense that the words of God, as originally given in the original manuscripts, do not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. They are true. They are factual. They are inerrant. Now, inerrancy flows out of another big uh, I, that of inspiration that we looked at last week. But the three of them go together, infallibility, inerrancy, inspiration. They're kind of closely wedded together. Now, inspiration affirms that the Bible contains God's very words. That's what we looked at particularly last week. That the words of God originally given are his words. And because he is both all-knowing and truthful and cannot lie, we know that all the words of Scripture are therefore God's words and infallible. Because God is absolutely honest and true. And he knows everything. 
So when he communicates, he communicates truth and knowledge without error to us. This is a huge issue, the inerrancy of Scripture. It's confirmed throughout the Bible. So in Psalm 119, verse 142, it says, God's law is true. And you remember that incident in Acts chapter 17 where the church in Berea dug into the Scriptures. They examined the Scriptures to see whether these things were true because they saw the Scriptures were the ultimate arbiter of truth. And then, of course, in the final chapter of the Bible, indeed, in one of the last, uh, if not the last chapter of the Bible, in the last book of the Bible, in the final chapter, Revelation 22, we read, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophet, sent his angel to show his servants there's John talking about himself as an apostle, as a servant of God, to show these servants, the apostles, the things that must soon take place. So there's that double reinforcement again, the prophets and the apostles. And again, the inerrancy of Scripture is crucial to the health of the church. Everything else falls apart if the Bible is not true. If it is full of errors, it can't be trustworthy. We can no longer talk about the authority of Scripture if the Bible contains errors. Now, of course, it's always been the work of the devil to cast doubt upon God's word. Where was that first seen? Paddy O'Donnell. The Garden of Eden. Do you remember that little phrase? So... Satan comes to Eve and says, did God really say? And in those few words, there's a world of doubt being cast, both upon the character of God and the goodness of God. Because the implication is, you can't trust God. He's keeping something from you. Did God really say? So throughout history, it's always been that attack upon the truth of scriptures is an ever-present reality because the devil always wants to undermine the truth of God and the character of God. And the inerrancy of scripture touches upon all the major issues of life. The truth of the gospel. Can we really trust the gospel? Is it really true? The value of Christ. Is he really who he is? Who he says he is? How do we know? The only way we know is from the word of God. How do you interpret the scripture? Which is a, another time for us to have a look in, into altogether again. But the interpretation of scripture. Because the mind of God is revealed in scripture and therefore... The affirmation of the Bible is that there is a continuity of thought running all the way through the Bible. In fact, the Bible is an unfolding story of God's salvation. It starts in a garden, it ends in a city. And all the way through, with increasing revelation, it kind of goes like this as you go further along the, in, the, in the timeline of the Bible. God is revealing more and more about himself.
the authority of preaching. There's no point coming here on a Sunday morning and listening to Pastor Mike and others preach the Bible if it's not true, because all we're hearing is the word of man. The importance of inerrancy touches upon the honor of God, because it's back to this question, can God be trusted? Is he honest? Is he true? It touches upon the need of the world, because the Bible describes the need of the world in sharp and stark terms. It says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is in the same bucket. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. If that's not true, then the Bible has no relevance to us. We see it. We've seen it even this week. Where have we seen the issue of inerrancy this week? It's been in the headlines. The Church of England Synod. What's the debate been about? About the whole thing of um, homosexuality, gay marriage, all the rest of it. But what's underneath that is God says it's wrong. He's not saying he hates homosexual people. It's simply saying homosexuality is wrong. It's a terrible denial of who we are as human beings and how God has made us. But that debate in the Church of England is basically saying, well, you can have different views on this. The Bible, and this would have been said in Sinner, the Bible is not... It it was then. You you can't believe it now. We've we've moved on. One of the most arrogant things in that debate is that the the bishops in in, in the African world and in the Asian world who've stood upon the reliability of the Bible have actually been faced with terrible racism because white, white British bishops have inferred, well, of course, when they grow up, when they become sophisticated, they'll see things the way that we do. What arrogance. It's appalling arrogance and racism. So it's ever with us, you see, this issue of the inerrancy of Scripture. It touches upon us at every point of life in one way or another. Well, we've 10 minutes left, so jump on the next iceberg. Hope your grip ones are staying on your feet. We're now looking at the sufficiency of Scripture. There's an American uh, theologian called Wayne Grudem, and he says this. By the way, there's all sorts of books you can pick up on and go dig deeper on this, and we'd love to tell you about them if you want to know them. But Wayne Grudem has written a book basically upon Christian theology and why we believe what we believe. And he says this about sufficiency. He says, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. Do you remember the Bible was an unfolding revelation? What Moses knew, he only knew in part. What we know is the full story. So Grudem says this, all he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. In other words, it's fit for purpose. Sufficiency is wedded to revelation and authority. 
as lots of these truths are kind of, I think as Steve has made the point before, we can't just put them in a little uh, silo, as it were. They kind of belong to each other. So sufficiency belongs to revelation and authority. Deuteronomy says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. That was the expectation right back there in the formation of the people of Israel there in Deuteronomy. It continues through to this day. The Bible itself is very clear about this issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. At strategic points in the unfolding history of salvation, there's warnings neither to add or subtract from the Word of God. So Deuteronomy 4, Proverbs 30, Revelation 22 that we looked at a bit earlier, all of these are warning us against taking away or adding to the Word of God. And you remember in John's Gospel, in John 14 and 16, how Jesus promised the, the disciples, the apostles, that the Holy Spirit would reveal and remind them of his word. And that recall would be infallible because God was superintending it, not because they were smart cookies. You know what it's like, isn't it? We, two of us could see the same thing and we both come out with different accounts of it. The disciples saw and heard the words, the miracles, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Their authority is not dependent upon how they told the story because it was the Holy Spirit that was superintending them. Of course, the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus carry their own characteristics. That's the genius of it. Luke was the historian. He, he spoke with the apostles. He was the doctor to them all. He heard it all from them firsthand. Mark, that young man who ran away, his gospel, very short, very to the point, all about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, seat in Old Testament history, calls out all those quotes from the Old Testament to reinforce that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it goes on. God uses these human instruments with their own characteristics, with their own interests, but he superintends it. And he says it's infallible because it's not down to them, it's down to me. So Paul says in 2 Timothy that the scriptures are given us so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, this is sufficient. This is sufficient to live as a Christian in this world because, as Jude puts it, we have the faith once delivered entrusted to us. But notice what the Bible is affirming and it's not affirming. When we talk about sufficiency, we're talking about the Bible being able to make us wise, to use the Bible's phrase, wise for salvation and to equip us for every good work. It's conveying to us the biggest things in life that we need to know. It's truth and life wedded together. It's doctrine and devotion wedded together. They contain everything we need to live the Christian life. That's not that's not saying they convey everything we want 
to know. There's 101 things we want to know. I was preaching at a church this morning over in Kenton. A lady came up. She obviously decided we were similar ages. She says, well, I'm at that stage of life now where the grave is a bit nearer than it was. And um, she said, I've often wondered about all my friends that I've lost. Um, In heaven, will I recognize them? What would you say to her? Would you recognize them? What age will they be? That's interesting, isn't it? Will we be at our peak? Or will we be where some of us are right now? On the downward slope, sinking under the iceberg. It's interesting. The Bible doesn't tell us, does it? I think it tells us that we will recognize each other because on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember how the apostles recognized Moses and Elijah. And I don't think it's because they had t-shirts on saying, I'm Moses and I'm Elijah. There will be recognition. It's intriguing things. But the Bible tells us all we need to know. Not all that we want to know. There's an important distinction there. So when we talk about sufficiency, it's about the need. What we need to know. It's sufficient for our knowledge. It's also sufficient for Christian living. It's specific about lifestyle and behavior that's required of every Christian, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we sang at the beginning, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have one minute. I dare to tell this story. When Pastor Mike was a young man, he came with his dad and I to a conference just down the road at um, Kempton. It was a Christian resources exhibition. And there was, there was a... Do you remember this, Mike? There, there was a seminar on God's word for God's world. We thought, brilliant, we want to go to this. We, went, we turned up to it. We've been waiting all week for this. We turned up to it. There were only about eight of us in the room. This, this is a massive subject. God's word for God's world. There's only eight people, about thousands that were at this thing, turned up for this. But the guy who was who was uh, giving the lecture, he, he was inadvertently quite comical. If I say Les Dawson to an older generation, you'll get the idea. And uh, he said, oh, I, was, uh, I was in my hotel room last night, and uh, I, it, was, it was pitch black, and uh, I needed to go to the little room. You know, I needed to go to the little room. It's middle of the night. I went along the wall like this, and a verse came into my mind. You know what the verse is. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I reached the light switch and I put it on and I could find where the loo was. By this time, John and I were absolutely, absolutely gone, crying. Mike was horrified because here was his dad behaving like a 14-year-old with his mate. We ran out. Well, I ran out, I think, of this thing because it's laughing so much but it's always stayed with me I've just ruined that verse for you haven't I your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path but you will remember it that's the good side of it it's entirely reliable your word will guide us and the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is a glorious thing it means we have everything we need everything we need Don't you realize sometimes, and don't you kind of think sometimes as a Christian, well, I'm so blessed. 
God has revealed himself to me. And he's given me his word. And there are thousands of people in the world that don't have that same privilege. Derek and Liz spent most of their life going to the Philippines because they wanted an indigenous group, the Talbuid tribe on the island of Mindoro, to have the word of God in their own language. Why? Because they were convinced that this word of God is not only authoritative, it's not only inerrant, it is also sufficient. It's sufficient for life, for all that we need for life. Because in it, what are we given? We're given the mind and the wisdom of God. That's incredible. In a world of darkness, God gives us his light. It should overwhelm us at times. It means that we can test and weigh alternatives, not only alternative religions, but alternative worldviews, and see actually that's the wisdom of man. And it pales into insignificance against the wisdom of God. We can sure, we can be sure what we believe about God. We can be guarded against legalism and traditionalism. We can be kept humble in admitting that our knowledge, wonderful though it is, is limited. But one day, faith will give way to sight. And we shall know even as we are known. What a hope is ours. Let's pray together, shall we? And then... Dave and Becky are going to come and lead us in a song. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gone to inordinate lengths, incredible lengths, to give us the word of God. We thank you in this country for those men that gave their lives that we could have the word of God in our own language. But we know it will remain print upon the page unless you come by your Holy Spirit to inspire us, to show us the truth of your word, to write it upon our hearts. And we thank you that glorious work goes on day after day after day, not only here but around the world amongst your people. Lord, please reinforce these truths in our lives, we pray. Help us to cherish them and love them and marvel at your goodness to us in giving us your word. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing How Firm a Foundation. We're going to sing it to the tune.